This episode is brought to you in part by the Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This is the one where Adam tries to decide whether to buy an electric car. In the age of Tesla, is it the right choice? Where did the choice even come from? It's device in virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, <laughs> where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam. Today we're talking about maybe the most ubiquitous, invisible <laughs> technology that you and I have not talked about. Gasoline. <laughs> Gasoline. Except now everyone's talking about it because, oh man, my gosh, it's expensive. The, the prices are sky high. They're coming down a little bit, but they've they've hit record highs this summer. You know how sometimes I go out to the Chicago suburbs to visit you so we can record? Yes. And then sometimes you come to the city so we yes. can record. Yes. And one of my secrets is that every time I go to your house, I always buy gas <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's like a dollar cheaper oh, out there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, in the city in Chicago, gas this summer has been, I think I've seen like six fifty mm-hmm. a gallon, yeah, right. which is like the highest I've ever seen in my lifetime. Nationally, it peaked just over $5. But yeah, here in Chicago, it was way higher than that. Even in the suburbs, it was way higher than that. Yeah. Yeah. I got out of Chicagoland altogether, out of Illinois altogether just yesterday, and I paid less than $4, which was crazy. Oh, really? You Incredible. Did, yeah, you did a little road trip across the state lines. Yeah. And of course, taxes change, but it's the big things, right? It's like the mm-hmm. cost of crude oil from what I've read and like the oil yeah. futures and all the economic things that I think we're going to try to talk about. Some, but we'll <laughs> if we're talking about oil futures, I'm going I'm to be lost. And <laughs> yeah, we're going to be lost with me. I was saying to you right before we hit record, I love technologies that we constantly use but barely notice. Mm-hmm. Like car keys is one of my favorite examples <laughs> of where everyone has these little metal etchings in their pocket on a little loop. Right, right. And they're weird. Right. Like they're actually sort of weird. <laughs> like when you sort of deconstruct it and think, oh, I can imagine a world maybe where this isn't how this is. Right. This isn't how this works. And gasoline and gas stations in every corner, Marathon, Amico, and I'm going to say BP. I feel like there's also Sit-go. like- go. But there's also gas stations like in different states that people yeah. are like, oh, this Bucky's, is... Bucky's, <laughs> Casey's. <laughs> or, you know, we have listeners in the UK and other places, and I have no idea what the names of gas stations are there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember from your Durham days? I think they have BP there because it's British Petroleum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Can we imagine a world where this wasn't like that, where right. you don't pull in and get our petrol stations, right? Okay. <laughs> right, right. Can we imagine a world where it didn't form like this or it didn't look like this? We just don't think about it. You're talking about an alternate history. An alternate universe kind of world. Right. <laughs> uh, a multiverse where a hundred years ago, 120 years ago, we did something completely different. Like choose electric cars instead of gasoline powered vehicles. So today I want to talk all about this electric car stuff because that actually has been big and there's new legislation and people have been going back to it because gas is so stinking high. (laughs) I actually own a hybrid car. I own an old 
Toyota Camry that was a 2007. It was a hybrid, right? And I was actually sort of excited when I got it. Yeah. I was, when I did get it, it was like 2010. And actually, gas was going, had been high recently. I remember <laughs> this. So like, not even close uh, to now. Right. But I remember thinking like, man, I'm going to be the envy when gas goes back up. And so mm. this feels like a mm. smart decision. Mm. I really liked that car. But now we're talking about the full plug-in cars, yeah. except... I didn't realize that there was an option for electric cars back in, what, 1900s? Right. Back when gasoline-powered engines were emerging as the main form of human transportation, there was also this kind of alternate thread, kind of the alternate ending where electric vehicles were developed and could have taken us in a different direction altogether, but didn't. You know, we were calling them the horseless carriages back then, of Mm. course, because we always call new technologies using sort of the frame of the old technology. (laughs) And I mean, Wikipedia was talking about like in 1896, there was one called the Armstrong horseless carriage. This is interesting. It was the earliest hybrid vehicle. It had electric motor with a battery and a gasoline. Really? Engine together, like a hybrid. 1896. (laughs) Yes. Wow. I think I read some of the history that said early on people were experimenting without the horse and batteries were one of the things. But the technology wasn't that good on batteries, right? Right. Right. And so it didn't go far enough. I guess by the time we got to like the Ford Model T and stuff, engines were just better at the time. They could go faster. They were lighter. I was reading a Smithsonian website talking about why we chose gasoline cars, you know, Mm -hmm. over electrics. People got really into camping with their car, which is really weird. Oh, what are you talking about? People still do that. No, no. But I'm talking about like in the 20s, there's like this photo that I feel like we should put on our website of a woman who has her the engine on the car is creating heat and she's like cooking hot dogs oh. and steaks on she, top. She's, she's made the engine into a multi-purpose tool yeah exactly it's sort of fun though to go back and think about this stuff like even gasoline when you're reading about this it was an accidental discovery they were mm. doing oil processing and they were throwing out the gasoline at first oh really yeah because they were like why do we even need this stuff it's not useful <laughs> wow. yeah some guy in the 1890s figured out that you could use gas as a valuable fuel. And so by 1920s, you start getting all these cars around. Do you remember leaded gasoline? No. I. It's all unleaded and I don't even know what leaded would mean. <laughs> I feel like you were old enough to know this or you know car things more than I do. Well, that might be true, but I have no context for what leaded gasoline means. So like I have a memory when I was a kid of us pulling up at the gas stations and I'd ask you unleaded or, or leaded. Oh, really? Yeah. So I guess my age is coming. Oh, I guess through. so. It, it turns out I started adding lead to gas because early engines would backfire all the time. It's that thing. I don't know. Do you understand internal combustion engines? I don't totally, but it's trying to do a controlled explosion in a chamber. Right. And the gas would explode when it shouldn't explode. And when they added lead, it would like help control it. It just made oh, it smoother. It made cars not like boom, 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 boom. So they added that. Then they realized lead is really poisonous. And so (laughs) we shouldn't do this. So they had to make a law in the 70s to take lead out. By the way, I just read that even though the U.S. did that in the 70s, countries in the world did not finish that to wait for it last year. Really? Wow. (laughs) 50 years later. Yeah, that we've been slowly removing leaded gasoline from the world. Wow. The UN, or the equivalent of the UN for whatever that was, announced that actually on some third world countries, they just shut down the last leaded gas situation. Incredible. Right. It's really easy to think the way you just thought unleaded was always been that way, but of course it hasn't. Right. And it's really easy to sort of imagine that there was no other thing like electric. But then came that movie, Who Killed 
the electric car in 2006, which was all about how an electric car did exist in the late 90s and then huh. went away mysteriously and what happened. I feel like we should talk about that. So Yes. And then I think we need to just think about our electric vehicles, all that they're being promised to be in terms of being good for the environment, being a good response to climate change. Are they the solution to all the oil and gas environmental issues that we're faced with today? Yeah. What you really want to know is, should you buy an electric car the next, when you t- go to buy a car, right? You know, I, I think <laughs> I'll probably buy an, a new car within the next year. Yeah. And yeah, you, you, should I buy a hybrid? Should I buy an electric vehicle? Is this going to help me sleep better at night? Maybe I can help you. I mean, I will miss your old scooty little blue. What is it? A bl- <laughs> it's a blue Acura. Yeah, yeah. your scooty little blue Acura. <laughs> scooty. But maybe we should think about first how we are not as free as we think to choose the kind of tech we want. Okay, Chris, what do you mean we're not as free as we think we are? Because I, for one, am an American (laughs) where I have freedom and I use all of it as much as possible. So how can you tell me I don't have freedom? Because I I do, obviously. (laughs) So gasoline and cars, as you know, is a great example of the way a technology infrastructure affects, maybe we can call it like an individual technology. Okay. So we have an entire network of gas stations and gasoline and truckers that move gasoline from the refineries to the, I guess it's finishing stations. I learned when reading about gas. And that's where they blend gas for like winter blends or summer blends. And actually some states have different rules. They blend it for that state. And then they move it to the final gas station, dump it in that tank, and then you get it into your car. Well, that whole system is a massive system. Multiple companies involved, all this transportation involved. You go to the dealer and your options are to buy cars that use gas. Exactly. Because that's our system. Right. That's the infrastructure system that we've already talked about. There could be electric or maybe there's other ways of doing it, but that infrastructure sort of defines this is the technology that's available to you. Mm-hmm. You can choose between red and blue, SUV <laughs> and tiny, but they all use gas. Okay. Right? Yeah. But we have a lot of technologies like this. And when you think about it, cell phones, our iPhones, all are amazing technology on their own. They have touchscreens. They've got cool batteries. They've got great software, but they don't really work if they're not connected. And they connect to these cell networks, of okay. course, right? And that okay. cell net or, or Wi-Fi or really both. And so the combination mm-hmm. of these two is the infrastructure that our entire system of texting each other and searching for something at Target while we're on the fly works on okay and if it wasn't it'd just be like that pda that i was doing graffiti on in 1994 Mm -hmm. to take notes because i didn't connect to anything right right? it was just like a little electronic assistant they called it pda being personal digital device (laughs) assistant not public (laughs) display of affection thanks for that clarification but you know right examples like this yeah you didn't mention oil pipelines that are underground crisscrossing most of the United States, giant pipes that are running across state lines, like pipes in your house. They're literally moving oil from one state to another state. And then also the whole interstate system, right? And those are two sort of intersecting infrastructures. You were mentioning the smartphone. If I want to get on the highway, I can't walk on the highway. 
Yeah. Literally, I think you can get arrested or cited or whatever <laughs> right, right. for walking on the highway, right? right. If I want to access the highway, I have to have a car to access the highway. In the same way that if I want to access the internet, I have to have a computer or a smartphone to access the internet. Okay. Right. And now we have cars that are not using the oil and gas, but they're using battery power to do it instead, but they're still using the same end infrastructure of interstate highways. Oh, that's interesting. So it's just one side of this that's being kind of shifted around with a new form of energy. It's really good that you bring that up because the interstate infrastructure, yeah, that's huge. In fact, I was reading about when the car got going, it was incredibly fast how much we decided as a nation that we're like, oh, we need we need highways. And so like, like in 1918, I didn't even realize realize this early there was a suggested national highway plan and they sort of did that and then of course we hear about the interstates later after world war one they wind up asking general pershing the famous general you know okay from the war the war okay to create a map it's called the pershing map that that linked to highways in the u.s i was trying to figure out how this worked but in 1919 the military sent an expedition across the u.s with military vehicles to figure out if they could cross the whole u.s like for defense this was in 1919 we're sort of coming off of world war one and we're like can we do this turns out they can't there's places where bridges weren't good or the roads weren't very wide so they're like we've got to fix this guess who was on that trip by the way famous person who wind up affecting the whole infrastructure of roads later. I don't know if you saw my notes. <laughs> I, I didn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess Ike Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was, tw- really? was 28 years old. No kidding. He was a young officer in his 20s, and he was on this expedition. I, I did not see it, I promise. Good job. <laughs> later, he becomes the president of the United States who authorizes, of course, the whole interstate system. Right. And about three miles south of where you live is the Eisenhower Expressway 100%. here in Chicago. We call it the Eisenhower or the Eisenhower. Yeah. yeah, we do. You know, I don't even think about that. We do. We do. <laughs> I'll even say old school Chicago people that refer to the interstates. Gosh, what is the number of the Eisenhower. 290. 290. I-290. But I call it the Eisenhower or yeah. the Kennedy or the Dan Ryan. We right. have names for the expressways in the city. Yeah. Right. This links back, you mentioned 1918, the Lincoln Highway is sort of a hobby interest of mine. Wait, it, didn't you and your dad do this? We, we did Route 66. Oh, yeah, yeah, But the Lincoln Highway was the first transcontinental. It went from New York City, from Times Square to San Francisco, but a lot of it was not paved. Yeah. But that was when they first started paving Interesting. roads. Yeah. Actually, just west of Chicago is the first seedling mile. They paved one mile of concrete road so people could experience for the first time driving on concrete. No, it was like a test run. <laughs> yeah. And and they oh, did cool. these all, all yeah. along the Lincoln Highway up from coast to coast so people could experience it. It's still there. It's out in the middle of corn between towns. But people before that were driving through mud. I mean, they didn't really have gravel roads, all of this. And then it goes on, 1918, 1919. Yeah. They're, they're figuring out how do you get across the country how do you move military vehicles from state to state? Right. These infrastructure, the road infrastructure, winds up creating, sort of reversing into the cars. Like, again, yeah. our choices when we go to the dealer. I have a totally different example. I think we can think in our minds of like, what are examples of technologies that have an infrastructure around them? Right. I have one when I did high school in Japan, which you know, we lived in yeah. the military, lived in Japan. And I remember going into, as a high school student, going into a music store for the first time. And look, okay. it was in the era of, you know, in between tapes and CDs. Like we, mostly CDs, but you could actually get cassette tapes still. <laughs> and 
when I went into the store, there weren't tapes or CDs. Hmm. Every section of music in this, you know, very modern Japanese music store with people browsing and like sort of signs for the artists and things. Okay. Every section had little plastic, they look like floppy disks, sort of like the old, fl- old, old floppy disks, like right. three and a half inch right, right. disks. But they were a little bit smaller than that. A lot of them were transparent. And the music, you took this little disk and like went click into a little slot on a player. Do you remember these? They were called MDs, uh-uh. mini disks. Uh-uh. And they were like an optical, like sort of CD, but built into a hard case. Oh, interesting. And it would click into a system. Well, they were super popular in Japan. In fact, Lots of Japanese folks for years, like I think they like out in like 1991 or something, use these all the time for their music, but huh. they all have players. They look like little Discman Walkman, but they didn't skip like a Discman, if oh, you remember, interesting. because they didn't shake around like that. Because like discs were more like records, right? And they had right. to balance and they right. get out of balance. Right, and they, right. If you remember this, on the portable things, these could click in. They had skip protection. They worked really well. In the US, you didn't have this choice. You couldn't walk into a music store and buy an MD because there weren't MD players, hmm. right? Hmm. People didn't own these things. Hmm. In Japan, everyone owned MD players, so you went in and bought your music in an MD. That's another example of how a technology, the infrastructure, the MD players, influences our choices when we walk into the store, the individual technology. Right, right. Interesting. And, I mean, even just electricity, right? Lights. Oh, you gosh, know, not a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah. We've got power lines running into our homes to power everything, and... It's just invisible. We don't really think about it. But that's really some of the infrastructure that is enabling this shift now to electric vehicles. Well, yeah. So my question is, is looking back at these old technologies, is where do these infrastructures come from? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think they come from usually either governments or corporations. Okay. And usually some combination, right? right? And so this gets into the even like, you know, who picks winners and losers with technology and does technology sort of always have its own way? But in the cases of like the interstates, well, gosh, the U.S. government said we're going to build these huge highways. Right. Right. In the case of MDs, Sony, I think Sony owned that technology. I don't know why MDs actually became the big technology in Japan, but that tech company built that. In the case of Facebook, which winds up becoming a platform later, right. a tech company says we're going to build this. And then all this stuff is going to get built on top of it. But it usually is not an individual consumer that makes that infrastructure choice. Well, and we talked about the metaverse last season. And Facebook has this same mindset now of saying, we want to create all of the infrastructure necessary to build the metaverse as this way to interact and way to connect with people. And we'll need a device to do that. We'll need a device to access their infrastructure but they're trying to make themselves as indispensable as the interstate system, the electrical grid, the internet network, and make it impossible for us to opt out, which goes back to your comment about how much freedom do we have to buy into a network, buy into an infrastructure and participate in it, and how much is we just have to we have to get on board and participate. So do we individually can we choose things in the middle of the infrastructure and then who creates the infrastructures? And then like, I, obviously we're going to have to talk about, can you do right or wrong within these infrastructures? Yeah. But, but let's just hit the current change in infrastructure right now. That's coming about. That's going to bring about the electric car. This episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. 
That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So, Adam, if your next car is going to be an electric car, a lot of things are going to have to change in terms of infrastructure. You're right. But it's happening, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I do love road trips. I would love to drive the Lincoln Highway. I've driven parts of it. I've done Route 66. But yeah, the prospect of doing kind of a cross-country road trip in an electric vehicle sounds pretty prohibitive right now with the infrastructure the way it is. I mean, the ability to charge your vehicle is, I think, the biggest hurdle right now. I read one story of a reporter who she was, she was she driving from New Orleans to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, right. And like they were trying to find chargers and at one point the right. car got down to it. You have one mile <laughs> left, like charge now. And the thing was good. And they wound up having to park like in, the, I guess there are slow chargers and then slightly faster chargers yes, and then right. really rapid chargers. Right. But the slow chargers take overnight to charge. Right. They like wind up using a slow charger in the middle of like, there's a chain leak fence and a broken alley <laughs> right, and right. no restaurants nearby. Right. And it just feels dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, there's level one, level two, level three kind of chargers. In a typical home, you're going to have 120 volts coming through your outlets. Okay. And you can plug your car into that, but it's going to take eight, 12 hours for it to charge. Okay. Yeah. So it's like charging uh, your phone overnight or something. Yeah. Some people are installing 240 volt outlets in their garage. Tesla superchargers are. 480 volts so even more oh, so like a lot more powerful yeah and yeah they say you can charge your car in about a half hour or up to 80 oh. percent in about okay. a half hour okay but yeah i mean so far in the u.s there's only about ninety-three thousand public chargers it sounds like a lot it sounds like a lot right but president biden i actually uh, see them in chicago like there are, yeah. there are i mean some places you see parking lots like target i think has a couple parking spots with some yeah. And, and that's one of the interesting things is like, you don't really need a gas. You don't have to go to a gas station necessarily to charge your car. You right. could be in a parking lot because the electricity infrastructure is all over. And so you can kind of plug in anywhere to some degree right. if, if they've made it available. Right. But yeah, 93,000 today. Yeah. President Biden's infrastructure plan has planned for 500,000 stations. Oh, okay. And he's earmarked about $5 billion over the next five years for that. But McKinsey and Company estimates that we actually need something like 1.2 million chargers. Wow. Versus like we have 90,000 now. We have 90,000. So <laughs> yeah. we're talking like yeah, ten less than over 10%, 10 times. Yeah, right. right of what we need. And so, yeah, this prospect of can I make that cross-country road trip in an electric vehicle, I can't just fill up in 15 minutes you know, at a gas station. I'm probably going to have to wait at least 30 minutes, if not longer, if I can't find a supercharging station. Yeah. I mean, it's starting to look really interesting. I know the demand for electric vehicles is way up. GM announced that their entire line of cars are going to be electric. 
That's by 2030 goal, or by something. 2030. And they're releasing like a Ford F-150 version of a electric truck. Yes, the Lightning F-150. The, the Lightning F-150. So we're getting that. What makes sense to me is that, you know, those are niches until we get all those charging stations. Yeah. We need that infrastructure. And the way that technology works with our economy, one company can't do that. Even Tesla, who's like the, the total hot name in, in electric cars, and yep. it's been around, it's become really normalized now. Like I see at least Tesla's like every day yeah, driving absolutely. on Chicago streets. But the chargers, they're still, what you're saying is not nearly enough chargers for someone to really drive around the US and their electric guitar. <laughs> and their electric guitar. I just said it. That's the that's the fourth time I've actually tripped on electric guitar versus electric car. Uh. <laughs> um, there are not nearly enough electric guitars for all of Metallica to be playing. The, uh, <laughs> we're going to need the infrastructure, and I think companies can't do this on their own. Like government, just like the interstates or other things, really sort of has to create this. And this is what they're doing with the infrastructure bill. Right. I mean, I, I guess the question is, is how does this affect your and I's theories about whether technologies affect history or history affects technology? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. what we're saying is the government has to create these infrastructures like the roads or all the electronics charging network so that we can have these electric cars. Yeah. Is that really the way it's worked? I don't know. How does this <laughs> affect all our theories about the printing press and everything else? Yeah. Well, even just in my research, I was surprised to learn how many electric vehicles there are out there. I mean, I would say there's over a hundred different models. Yeah, sure. But the one everyone's paying attention to is Tesla, right? Yeah, right. And it's really Tesla that has pushed on this issue to drive demand for electric vehicles in the US especially. And that really has been the will of Elon Musk and his board of directors, maybe they've really driven. We're talking about the car itself and to some degree, the infrastructure. Well, the, like, the Tesla supercharger network, they had to start building because they had to have a way for people to drive on right. road trips. They have only about 1,400 superchargers across the country and another 7,000 charger ports. So oh, okay. not these superchargers. I see. But, and that's just like a drop in the bucket when you think about 1.2 yeah, million, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But they have had to create a bit of the infrastructure as sort of a minimum viable product to then drive this change. Now the government is picking it up, Interesting, right? Interesting, right. Okay, so you're saying it starts with maybe a crazy inventor. Sure. <laughs> a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Well, it became, but it became a billionaire... Partly, Partly based because on of this. the investment in this technology. Right. But he's invested to make this happen. And so there is, you have to have a huge financial outlay and And then the government force of responds will. and helps create the things that everyone needs to share, like roads or like the shared things. Right. We right. don't have private roads, like right. the, where everyone runs on their, you know, it's Facebook roads over here and Apple's <laughs> roads over here. Like, because that'd be massively inefficient and wouldn't work. So we right. need some sort of central arbiter of creating a network. Right. But he's replaced the oil and gas infrastructure with his own infrastructure. Yeah. But he hasn't replaced the electrical grid, just some of the kind of end user requirements sure, for that grid sure right? sure it just leads me to think even in technology history how do some technologies get picked up really quickly yeah and some go really slowly i do a lot of communication theory and tech and so we talk about these things but really there's a lot of tech professors that study it from the point of view of economics and governments because of this infrastructure question right, right? and they right. say this is the leading force in how new technologies came about i was looking at norway 
Yeah. Do you know in Norway, 83% of cars are pure electric cars? 83%. Wow. And another 10% are hybrid. So less than 10% of cars in Norway even run on gasoline. Wow. Which is like crazy. And I watched this whole report of them sort of going through and what was different there. There are a lot of Nissan Leafs in Norway. Apparently it's the most common. Though The ambassador was on the report going, she goes, you see Nissan, they're the most common car around here. Uh, They're just uh. everywhere. Some of it probably was public culture and perception people sort of went for it it's a smaller country but the government also put in other policies like one reason that i can't have electric car we'll get to your decision in a second but i live in a condo building that has 40 condos in it okay and there's no garage so i can't put my own personal charger there and there's really not a spot for me to install a charger right well in norway they have a rule called the right to charge law Okay. So for renters, so you have a right to charge your car. So apparently like the, oh, the landlord doesn't have to pay for it. But if you tell your landlord you want to install a charger, like on the side of the building or uh, whatever it is, like they have to try to accommodate that. So, I mean, government policies, not only building right. the chargers, but also the policies can really help accelerate this. And that's how Norway in a smaller little closed country environment has accelerated a technology, yeah. I think. Well, and the U.S. has a $5,000 tax credit if you buy an electric vehicle. Okay. And you don't get any sort of tax credit for driving a gasoline car. Right. So they're incentivizing electric vehicles as well from that policy standpoint. I went back and watched the old documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car, like in 2006, like I was saying. And it was about the late 90s. And it was about these EV1 cars. And it was really interesting because these cars were really fast. They had people saying like, these were not wimpy cars. People thought of electric cars like little wimpy golf carts. You just sort of press on the gas and it sort of limps there. But actually, these things could accelerate like the Dickens. And they were in California. And the reason why they did it is because California passed a law saying a certain small percentage of cars need to be electric. And so GM put out this EV one. They leased it. They did it only on leases at first, you know, so you couldn't actually buy it. You put it on a car lease. And apparently people loved them. There was a waiting list to get these cars. But the guy that made the documentary named Chris Payne, he says that three years later, GM recalled all the leases, said there's no option to buy the car, hmm. took away all the electric cars, and went and shredded the cars. No Like, kidding. shredded them, and, like, I guess they have car shredders. I don't, that's, like, they, it, there's a spot in the documentary where it jumps to this huge metal contraption, and, like, cars are coming out like little metal fragments. <laughs> and they were shredding new cars. Really? Somehow they shredded the electric car. <laughs> That's crazy. And, and and the question of the documentary was like, why? And his charge was that GM felt like it wouldn't make enough money. That the oil and gas hmm. was one big industry. And then the second thing is that car manufacturers have a lot invested in car repair. Electric cars didn't have carburetors. They didn't have combustion engines. And these things yeah. break down and they're going to be repaired later. And he said the, the car industry's economic model is a lot like inkjet printers. When you buy an inkjet printer, it's really cheap, but they expect you to keep buying ink for like the <laughs> life of the printer. And they make a lot of money off that ink right, later. Right. That car manufacturers make a lot of money off of their car repair places. Mm. He says the electric cars weren't going to do that either. And so he accuses the car company of being the one that had enough power to remove the technology. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, and then they somehow changed the government of California's mind and they rescinded the requirement for a percentage of electric cars. Really? Yeah. Interesting. All based on the company. And now the company responds and says, no, people just didn't want the car. And he says, not true. 
And yeah. so like who, it was a chicken and egg thing. Did this company stop the technology or do we really actually have a choice? Was there a demand that was squashed by these big powerful forces or was there never really a demand in the first place? It's a really good, interesting study on how, whether technologies pop up because we want them or not. Huh. So essentially you're saying, even if I had the will to buy an electric vehicle, there could be forces at play that would limit my freedom to even be able to choose an electric vehicle. But today, that choice is re-emerging. Yeah, it's resurrecting, as it were. <laughs> the electric car seems to be coming back from the dead, which I guess we shouldn't make Jesus jokes about the electric car, <laughs> but definitely, right? And hmm. some, why is that? Maybe this is, oh, maybe this is why. Like, I'm just talking about these government forces versus the camp that says technological determinists that say technology plays a leading role in history. Hmm maybe they're just zoomed out really far because maybe when we look back at this whole scenario, that was in the late nineties, yeah. now it's 2022. Maybe in 200 years when they study this, they'll be like, no, look, the electric car was going to make it out of there. It just mm. took, it just went through some little bumps yeah. like for 20 years and yeah. governments have small ways to push things around and companies have small ways to push things around. But if the technology exists, it's going to emerge Yeah. anyway, which is now it's emerging, right? So now the technological determinist could say, see, look, the technology is there. It's coming back out. Yeah. Maybe Elon Musk is just really mad at GM for shredding all those EV ones. Maybe he <laughs> drove one, loved it and is today saying, nope, we're going to make it happen. So I guess the question is, now this is going to be available and there's a lot of options for you. Are you going to get one? Well, I don't think we're out of the woods yet because I think in reality, there are other environmental changes, so to speak, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> that aren't about the natural environment, but more about the social environment. Or the, yeah, or the technological environment. Yes. Yes. For instance, remember how we were talking recently about Marshall McLuhan and cars? Yes, What of episode course. was that? That was... He called the car, I don't know, I forgot. <laughs> I think it was the, it was the Google... Oh, our Google, our, our Google autocomplete. Auto yeah. McLuhan called the car um, the mechanical bride. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And he said the car did dramatic things to society. Like it broke up work and home life. Yeah. Broke up family life actually right. was his actual phrase Ooh. where he's like, cause you work over here, but then you come home over here and that changed the way families worked and how right. kids were raised, mm. you know, and he had some very strong things to say about this infrastructure. You know, the roads were asphalt jungles, he called them, you know, mm. and he said that cars created shopping malls. Right. He's like, there was everybody's a, favorite with a massive parking lot. You, <laughs> he said something like, you feel like an alien pedestrian until you walk inside, oh, right? Like, and we do, like, walking yeah. through these sort of gross cement environments <laughs> until we get into this the world that's supposedly made for the person. So, he really saw the effects of cars that right. were probably unintentional by the car manufacturer, right? Well, and I've claimed that cars created the mega church. Correct. Which is essentially yes. just like a mall in a yeah. lot of ways, right? Right. right. Where consumer selection really moved into, I want to choose a church that feels right for me and has teal lighting or something. Right. So, <laughs> so what other effects, unintentional environmental, but not natural environmental effects would happen if we went to an electric car? I was trying to think about this. Like, yeah. I'm trying to be Marshall McLuhan in my head, thinking about <laughs> these, these amazing things. And by the way, he says, of course, that he sees cars when he's riding in the 60s as already on the way out. He says they are destined to be replaced by electronic 
electronic successors, yeah. which is funny because I do not think he meant an electric car. I think he meant things like he saw that we we're going to use TVs to talk to each other mm. and FaceTime mm. and all this stuff we were talking about, <laughs> which is crazy. So what would change of an electric car? Well, I don't know. Think about this with me. I mean, the most obvious things we think, well, there's a lot less pollution coming from the tailpipe of a car. So yeah. maybe yeah. Um, cities reduce pollution, maybe that changes quality of life in some areas in yeah. terms of where people want to live. I mean, in Chicago, there's some nice neighborhoods with big trees, but there's also industrial areas with Ugh. trucks, you know, yeah. like in, in diesel and, and people don't want to live there. We don't mix industrial and residential. Right. Well, if a lot of our vehicles are actually not emitting any fumes, it might not bother us to move industrial and residential together yeah. in some zones, sure. which actually could change city planning, mm -hmm. which is interesting. But we can think about more things. Noise. Electric huh. cars run silently. Yeah. Or nearly silently, except yeah. for like air rush noise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. What would it be like for the Eisenhower to have all electric vehicles silence. going back and forth. You would and just they, hear this whirring. And they just installed a huge new section near the University of Illinois, Chicago, downtown, and they put in a huge cement wall on one side of it that was designed to keep some sound away from the right, university. Right, Sound barriers. Sound barriers. Sure. They, and we see these all over the U.S. near interstates. Yeah. Like, these become unnecessary. Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, those sound barriers are often just ugly or people have decided that they want to graffiti them. They become pallets for that. Land value that suddenly was like, no one wants to live. You want to live maybe close to a major transportation thing, but right. not like right next to the grossness. And you don't want to be able to hear it. Correct. Then now suddenly that that doesn't matter. That's right. not a factor. How right. does that change the way cities or mm -hmm. things are designed? I mean, mm -hmm. that's dramatic. Mm -hmm. If you think about if there's no noise, yeah. all cities would sound completely different. That would be crazy. So we got that. Charging stations are interesting. And you've talked about this before. You could put them sort of anywhere. Well, right. gas stations right now are places that, you know, business people started adding on convenience stores. They're like, because you're going to be there for 10 minutes, might as well get you to buy a candy bar. Right. Or maybe a McDonald's. Right. But let's just picture that charging things are the way they are now. Right. Meaning you've got to charge like, I don't know. You've got to take 30, 30 minutes 30 or minutes more. is the super fast charger. Maybe it's two hours of the slow charger. Well, what if... We suddenly start having these gathering points around retail, restaurants, cafes, shops, like destinations for chargers. So we don't create just a cement corner slab yeah. with a pull-in yeah. thing and a thing that wipes your window. We actually create like Starbucks all have chargers. Right. And you go to the Starbucks, there's networks of cafes and we wind up being in cafes with strangers who are traveling cross country mm -hmm. a lot because of course you're charging your car at that cafe. Imagine yeah. if Starbucks changed its business model to become charging stations plus cafes and they'd be one of the most or Dunkin Donuts yeah, one yeah, of the most yeah. obvious places to change their model there's an interest where you're mm. going to kill 30 minutes there mm. that changes the mm. way community and people flow it also makes me wonder you know if you're traveling across country and you don't want to wait are there suppliers that have charged vehicles and you can just swap one out for the other? And swap one out. And I have I seen things on battery swapping yeah. and future ideas. of like, And they we do that with electric bikes right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe buy a subscription service. instead. It's kind of like renting a vehicle, but you maybe swap out at every Well, you probably don't want to swap a vehicle because, I don't, I don't know, you spilled a Coke in there. But <laughs> yeah, so I mean, these kind of things matter, right? Like when we change... The sort of reimagining. The reimagining, what does it look like that... 
all the corners on those intersections don't have the gas stations anymore. Yeah. What do those become? Maybe some of those are the charging cafes, but I don't think it's one-to-one. Right. And so we use our corners differently, maybe. Right. And the, these are the things that are very hard, right? You're like, we're doing it and we yeah. can sort of get there, what but they're very if, hard to reach. And yeah, Marshall McLuhan, get... I think that's one of the reasons why people loved him is because he said things that 80 years on seem to be remarkably accurate of what it looked like if we all went to electric cars. But yeah. the biggest thing, and you and I were talking about this right before we started recording, is all those things could change with electric cars. But the electric car still looks a lot like a gasoline car. Yeah. It swaps a battery in for the engine, and we have the no noise, no pollution. But it still has the same sort of mode and mindset of a car. So there's still parking lots, Yeah. for instance. I've got to still drop my car somewhere. I mean, this is almost like back to the horseless carriage we were talking about before when we had horses pulling carts, and they're like, oh, now we have ones without the horses. But the original, the very first models all sort of looked a lot like carriages. Right, right. Like, because we, it's hard for us to imagine something different. Yeah. In fact... <laughs> I found this, by the way. I need to show you this. Wired Magazine had a write-up on this. This inventor in 1899 made a horseless carriage <laughs> that had a fake wooden horse stuck to the front. <laughs> Here's the drawing. And it looked like... Oh, my god! Because he was afraid what? that other horses on the road would get scared of something that was moving without, without a, horse. a horse. So he literally filed a patent for a fake no. wooden head of a horse, like a taxidermy no. horse head. And then he put a gas tank in it. What? <laughs> so the horse had double of the gas tank. I mean, that's clever. <laughs> Wired Magazine listed this as one of the failed attempts at an early time. <laughs> but like, what kind of electric car things are we doing with right. that kind of thing? Uh, I'll put this on the website so you can go look at this oh, picture. Man. It's so great. But in some ways, we have trouble imagining the future. When we have this battery technology for electric cars, we might not want to use it just in cars. We might want to use it in like electric trains or electric bicycles right. or electric buses or other ways that move people from just taking the transportation like electric bicycles are we, we should do a whole nother episode yeah. time on time that are poised are new during the pandemic their demand has skyrocketed mm-hmm. same technology but micro sized and maybe yeah. we don't need to move a two-ton vehicle every time we need to move one single person right right and that kind of transformative mind imagination might be where it actually goes well and i've been noticing in my Instagram feed, I've been getting advertisements for home battery packs that you install in your garage and you have a solar charging system that charges these large batteries, but they're actually Tesla batteries. I didn't realize why these were coming up until I was researching for this episode. Car batteries that are no longer being used for cars are being used to store solar power. So they're being recycled, essentially. They still have about 80% of their original capacity. Well, in Tesla, the vehicle. of course, has the solar panel industry too. Okay. Yeah. And the, so they've they've combined this. So there's a there's a secondary market now for Tesla batteries. Interesting. Yes. Because their battery technology is better than everyone's. Yeah. They invested in the core technology. And, and yeah. so suddenly you might have solar power powering your home and a battery either powering your house or it's just like having an external charger for your phone. Right? And you carry along the external charger and connect your phone to it when you need to. Love that thing. Used it in the park yesterday when there was no plug nearby. Right. Yeah. So maybe everything is changing. I mean, we're supposed to be thinking about the rights and wrongs Mm. or the wrongs and rights. I guess the question is, when we live in these huge systems, in these infrastructure systems, (laughs) these things that are bigger than us... 
can we make ethical choices? Chris, if I'm going to decide to buy an electric vehicle, perhaps one of the most important questions that I even wanted to know the answer to was... Is how cool will you look in it? Oh, really cool. <laughs> I mean, naturally. I mean, you should see my, my scooty Acura. In those sunglasses. <laughs> the, the question for me is, okay, what's it going to cost me, quote unquote, at the pump? At the charger. At the charging station, <laughs> the, right? I don't know what they call them. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. The charging station. At the station. pump, yes. Uh, yeah. See, our metaphors are going to have to change. Right, right. So I did put a spreadsheet together to try and figure this out because that's course, what I would do. Of course do. you did. <laughs> but it, it, it's a little bit apples and oranges, right? Because you're like, okay, I have to think, what's the battery's capacity mm-hmm. versus the fuel tank's capacity? And obviously... All different cars have different size tanks, blah, blah, blah. And then like I had to think, okay, what's the cost of the electricity versus the cost of the gas? And how far is that going to take me? Right. And like, so what's the range. Right. So I'm going to try and break it down and keep it simple. And I found that the cost for a full charge, say you charge it at home, the average cost that you're going to pay, this is in kilowatt hours, don't get bogged down there. You're going to pay about 15 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay, interesting. And it's going to end up costing, a full charge is going to end up costing you about 9.50. Okay. At 15 cents. Now, okay. a supercharger is going to be about double that, about 30 cents. Why? Oh, because uh, it's cause just because of the fasterness? Yeah, because of the speed, the convenience, oh. and the cost to deliver it at these stations. Oh, I see. Versus at your home, because okay. you can charge at home, right? But you're going to spend somewhere between nine fifty and like fifteen bucks. Okay, right. And I remember when I was reading that article of that reporter driving New Orleans, she was saying it was costing her about fifteen bucks. Sure, a pop right. to charge. Right. Yeah. Which sounded way cheap compared to last time I filled up my car. It sounds way cheap, right? Yeah. And so on average, that's going to take you about two hundred miles. Okay. On a charge. Okay. And oh, so well, that's shorter. That's a lot shorter. Is it, it depends. Yeah. So it kind of breaks down to about five cents per mile. You're going to pay five cents per mile okay, okay. driving an electric vehicle I see. on the charge, et cetera. But you have to factor in, it's going to take you longer to charge, et cetera, et cetera. So then I was looking at, okay, the cost of gasoline peaked on my birthday this summer mm. in June. It <laughs> peaked at 501 okay. in the US, national average. Obviously, Chicago paid 650 yeah, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So you were going to pay probably for a tank of gas about $60. Versus yeah. 10 to 15. Yeah, it sounds much more right. Right. And on average, that's going to take you about 290 miles. So about 300 miles, about 50% okay, I further. I see. So you're going you're gonna to pay more, but it's also going to take you farther. But it's going to end up per mile. It was 5 cents per mile for the electric vehicle. It's going to be about 20 cents per mile. Okay. So four times so as four much. So four times as much. Yeah. It'll take you farther. You'll wait less time to to fill up your tank, but it's going to require about 20 cents a mile. So just by comparison, for it to be equal between gas and electric, you would need to be paying $1.11 for gas. Oh, good job, Mr. Excel, or whatever you did here. That's really helpful to know. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. But the likelihood of us going back to $1.11, I mean, that sounds like a dream. No, yeah. It sounds right? like when I was a kid or something. Right, right. 
we'll post a link to this spreadsheet and you can play around with it and look <laughs> at, play around with the numbers and, and see how see we got Adam's to it. Spreadsheet. I Come see gets, my spreadsheet. I bet that gets a lot of play. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. You can punch in your car's fuel capacity and what you pay at the pump today and compare it to the national average. But that helps me really think, okay, at the pump, quote unquote, it's going to cost me a lot less. Now, electric vehicles today, the price tag up front is a lot higher. The average price of an electric vehicle is 66000 Oh, gosh. Versus about 46000 for a new vehicle. Both new of which have gone vehicle. up dramatically because of current inflation. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So, but over time, are you going to recoup that twenty grand in difference over the course of six years, which is the average, you know, for owning a new car? Maybe. And there's other factors that go into that, but that kind of starts to give you a sense of how you need to think about is this even worth it from just like a pocketbook perspective. Very helpful. But I think there's also another scale that we need to evaluate this from. Not just at the pump, but thinking about it from that sort of supply chain perspective. Yeah. You know, we've developed this fairly efficient means of transporting oil and gas and getting it where it needs to go, refineries, then gas stations, etc., Obviously, there's lots of politics and geopolitics around extracting oil and lots of environmental concerns that go into that. And we've pitched electric vehicles as this sort of green alternative. There is some truth to that. We think about it from what's coming out of the tailpipe, you know, and the... Yeah, electric cars have zero emissions. Right. Yeah. But we also have to look at the fact that the minerals that are going into batteries are six times greater than the minerals that need to go into a gasoline vehicle. The extraction involved in mining these oftentimes rare earth minerals are also bound up in geopolitics. Hmm. You know, lithium ion batteries require all sorts of rare materials like Nickel, lithium, cobalt, copper, and then rare earth metals that I can't even pronounce like neodymium and dysprosium. Yes, right. I mean, right. all of these things, yeah, right? I, I read those. In those <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just glaze over. And, you know, mining lithium is actually fairly easy. <laughs> He's like, I do it in my backyard. <laughs> but it primarily involves, there's a place called the Lithium Triangle which includes Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. Oh, wow. And 60% of all lithium is mined from water there, actually. What? Yeah. Okay. There, learning, there learning are these things. lithium-rich deposits. And so those countries have a big investment, but the people there also have a big investment, and they're being a bit disenfranchised in the process. They're already water-poor areas of those countries, and so the people that are living there are being disenfranchised by these mining companies that are wanting to take lithium from the water, et cetera, et cetera. Cobalt, 60% of cobalt is mined from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, I've heard you know, that. I've been there and there's tons of human rights violations that happen in that country for all sorts of reasons. Afghanistan, Russia, China are all mineral rich for these sorts of things, but the geopolitics of that is complicated. And so just the work of building these supply chains and mining the earth for these metals in order to develop. But at this point, you know, we're talking it's 5% of the total car market in the US and it's electric cars, oh, electric cars. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's expected to skyrocket. Right. And what's interesting is those lithium ion batteries are also powering our smartphones. Yeah. And the challenges of 
powering both and having enough batteries for both over the long term. They say by 2100, there's going to be a shortage of lithium and these other metals in order to even supply that sort of battery well, and, power. And even in the short term, I've heard global expand, even if the US, for instance, and yeah. Europe adopt electric cars, first third world countries have not even gone to the 5% level. Right. And so the global demand at that point will skyrocket as well. It'll be incredibly problematic. And so while it might be a savings for us in the short term in our wallets, the cost to the environment and the cost and power structures as they change within the geopolitical arena is going to be a question that we have to kind of consider and we have to think about as we're purchasing our next car. So what are you going to (laughs) do? Hopefully by now, people are starting to recognize some of the ethical issues that come up with electric vehicles and the larger infrastructure questions. You know, for me, I kind of see three or four things. The first one that I have obviously touched on is environmental care aspect. Sure. And this is an issue that... This is the one that everyone thinks about. Right. And it's not just what's coming out of the tailpipe, but what's going into the manufacturing of the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's both sides. And we're curious about the human cost for that and the justice involved there and all those things. Yeah. I know Jonathan Moo talks about creation care and has a book out about that. So that would be one place I would point people. But yeah, the human rights violations is a huge Mm -hmm. element. That was the second thing I was thinking about. There's maybe more regulation around oil and gas today and how that's being extracted. And so maybe from a human rights perspective, that's actually better regulated, but I don't actually totally know. My understanding from the lithium battery supply side, there are five big players right now. Only one of them has a published human rights policy and the other four really don't. Okay. You know, those sorts of regulations and violations. I mean, there are people tracking those violations. I looked at some of those statistics. I mean, there's violations all over the place. And a secondary aspect, that's maybe even just treatment of people that are mining the materials and not necessarily the impact of the people impacted living in those areas. So yeah, the human rights. And then I think there's this bigger question of how we're complicit in these large-scale operations in these infrastructures. You know, if I buy an electric vehicle, to what degree am I complicit in those systems, those injustices? I don't I don't really have an answer to that. And I don't have a clear sense of a theological perspective on our involvement in large-scale systems. Yeah, I think this is an age-old tension for believers in the Gospels. One of the things that my mind goes to is Jesus, who's asked, who should we pay taxes to, right? Yeah. And, you know, he famously holds up a coin and has Caesar's head on it. And he Mm -hmm. says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's, which is a deft answer because everyone has to decide for themselves. You know, the answer is like God owns everything. (laughs) Right. But you had a tension there between people living in a huge system. Right. They're living in the empire. Right. They're living in Rome. And they couldn't control the infrastructure. I mean, Rome has its own technology, right? right. Their roads were right. huge. Their communication right. was huge, but also their oppression was huge. And they are oppressing the people of God and they're a vassal state. And you sort of have your Sadducees who are like, well, we're in it. We just got to like live faithfully yeah. in it. 
Right. And so they become big part of the government, this kind of thing. They And they sort of make money from that. They're sort of the more, they're the wealthier ones. You have the Pharisees and then the Essenes. You know, we know these things that the ones are like, we're living purely and separately from right. the Roman world. And Jesus sort of actually comes up in that. He addresses mostly the Pharisees. And then you have the Essenes where like, we got to fight back against this. But Peter's part of that. You know, he has a sword. We think, but they both are sort of in opposition to the system. And they're like, how do we live faithfully in this system? Right. And one is going to, we're going to live private ethical lives and pray for Jesus to come back. and Or pray, for, I'm sorry, pray for the Messiah to come. And that's the Pharisees. The Essenes are like, we've got to fight back against this injustice. Yeah. And like the Maccabees of old, that was a couple hundred years before that, which mm-hmm. had fought back against their oppressors. And then you sort of have the Sadducees are like, we're in this system. We just got to live faithfully in it. Well, I think the church has always had that tension as well. And yeah. I'm, those were government systems, but I'm thinking about the technology systems. Like, yeah. what if the oil and gas system is actually a hugely unjust system that's destroying the earth? Right. Or in we in the in the interstates, and we've been living in that. The problem is they become really ubiquitous. They become right. really invisible. You always right. have a prophetic voice somewhere that mm-hmm. says this is bad. <laughs> you need to be able to see this. You're this is so invisible. Do you not see the gas station on every corner? Right. Do you not see the people that have mm. not seen Yahweh? Mm-hmm. And so those prophetic voices are really important. But I think how we act on those has been a real challenge. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are inheriting a kind of Babylonian captivity theology of exile and sort of reinterpreting it through their Roman Empire lens. I think John in his revelation is doing much the same thing in thinking, in kind of melding the Babylonian Empire and the Roman Empire and talking about being in exile in the empire. And, you know, we have examples like Daniel and Esther living within their respective empires as people who are faithful to Yahweh and trying to live faithfully, trying to act within the power structures, but also faithfully with the power that they have, whatever that is. Yes. Esther take, takes big risks with the little bit of power she has. Daniel, Daniel also takes big yeah. risks. Nehemiah is another one who takes risks and says, hey, I'm the cupbearer to the king, but I'm going to take a risk and use what little power I have to speak to the king. And so... And they don't burn it all down. Right. But they do, they work within their titles or their system, but also there are like key points of God-led resistance. Yeah, yeah. And those feel more epic to us. They feel more like there's a movie camera moving around it. But still, there are questions about how the individual Mm -hmm. faithful Christian lives in a system of technology. Yeah. And even Paul, you mentioned the Roman roads. Paul's using the Roman roads that are developed to move military in the same way that the interstate system in the U.S. was used to move the military. Like, he decides to use it to move the gospel. And and, and using the letter system, actually, to move yeah. the, and, like, to read the gospel. Yeah. And so there's, there is a way in which Christians are complicit in the power structures that are available to them, but they, they are disrupting those systems in the ways that allow them to stay faithful to God and to the gospel. So I think, Adam, I don't know if you should buy an electric car. As I really sign, need an answer. As a sign of Nehemiah-like protest, <laughs> or, or I guess not, uh, as a sign of like Daniel-like protest, right. or not buy one as a sign of 
like protest. Right. What I do know is that you only will have certain choices, and those choices yeah. will be partly laid out for you by technological infrastructure, mm. whether it's the gasoline system or the electric system, and somehow you're going to have to pray faithfully in that. So take all the weight of that theology and talk to your car dealer. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Adam, it's that time again. Time for vice or virtue. Oh, are you ready? Do you have one? Yep. (laughs) This is very similar to the technology we've been talking about, but it's much smaller. Remote control cars. Which was my first electric car. Oh yes. Oh man. I had I had this I had this really cool one. It was called a Trax. Trax with two X's. Oh and yeah. You yeah. can see the neon colors oh, already. Oh man, it was it was awesome. I think it was actually like like purple. Strangely. Ooh. Or maybe Girl it was color. Gray. maybe it was gray. I'm bad with colors. <laughs> That's a joke. But it had, it had two like tank like tracks on either side. It was like a sports car, but instead of being a sports car, it had these two tank track. What are those oh, things? Oh, wow. Called? Like tre- treads, treads or I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, could and it roll up on things? Yeah. I mean, it would just, it was great. And it was fast. And man, I made jumps for it. And yeah, <laughs> man, honestly, like, there's still parts of me that is like, I want one of those again. And the ones that exist today just aren't that great. I don't know. It's like one of the, like, oh, no, these days, they don't yeah, make these the cool days, toys. They just don't make them like they used to. <laughs> I mean, but yes, it brought me hours of joy when I was a kid. So it's definitely a virtue. <laughs> so my dad bought me, I remember this, bought me a red like Ferrari remote control and it went powered on one nine volt battery. Yep. yep. <laughs> Maybe two. A oh, one nine-volt battery in the remote. You know, you have the you had the remote with like two joysticks, yeah, left yeah, and yeah. right, and like and then a big telescoping antenna that yeah. went up. Oh, absolutely. But then I, I feel like in the car, maybe it was one nine-volt in the transmitter and one nine-volt in the car, but it had little headlights that lit up oh. when it turned on. Yeah, yeah. Like they were like <laughs> that's fantastic. It was so cool. It could not go over anything. Its wheels were tiny, small. It had like no ground clearance. <laughs> right, right. But if you got it on a really flat surface, it could like fly right. go really fast. Oh man, and. Of course, I promptly like ran it into something. Of you know? course, of course, <laughs> because I didn't know how to. Yeah, drive yeah, it. yeah. And you're learning on those little joysticks things. The batteries. I remember the batteries. Now that you're mentioning, it, like these, like nine volt batteries that, yeah. like, you could drive it for like six minutes and then it had to charge for like four hours. <laughs> oh my gosh, that <laughs> well, that's was true. They that was good. that was the worst. And I was just like, why so is this my life? So it's like an EV. <laughs> it's like an electric vehicle. <laughs> and now we're. Now we want to get inside <laughs> no, we, remote control cars. Well, to be literally. fair, we were all imagining ourselves inside the car anyway when we were it's driving true. around as kids. <laughs> and so for that reason, because it silently seduced us into being complicit into a technological system we weren't aware of. Oh, I can't call it a vice. It's just too, I loved it too much. I'll call it a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were like long lead preparing us for the electric vehicle revolution that we're in today. Now it's preparing me for electric Joan, which I also want. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you'll have to let us know what kind of car you buy. Yes. Okay, in a future episode. And let us know what you think at deviceandvirtue.com or on Instagram or Twitter. And join us on Patreon. 